Okay, you're all good? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the B2C Lead Generation Podcast. Today's episode is entitled, Why Data Transparency and Consent Unlocks Growth. Now, if you listen to the show before, you know we talk about transparency a lot, but this is the first time where we're really going to focus in on transparency as the main subject of the pod, and that's exciting. And to help us do that, we've got Jay Cromack. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hi. Good to see you guys. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Um, so just to kind of kick things off, like as part of the, the research into this, I kind of look around the website and look around the company and sort of see what jumps out to get me, you know, what, what, what jumps out at me and what sort of interests me. And I saw something, I, th- I don't know where, but I've written it down that said, um, my life digital's vision is to live in a world where your data powers positive outcomes for you and your society as a whole. I thought that was really cool. It's got a kind of a, a time sign like why you're doing it sort of vibe to it, which is really interesting. But just to kind of focus in on that, um, could you explain a little bit more about what that means to people listening? Yeah, sure. I, I think um, if, if I give a little bit of a backstory, if that's all right, without wanting to, to bore you guys, but kind of it's really how My Life Digital came about. Um, I like to say that, uh, you know, I've been a data practitioner for a number of years and, you know, um, up until probably 2014, I, I was like many other people, you know, quite happily using data that belonged to um, customers, you know, to do do the right thing, never anything unethical, but never really considering the potential consequences on the individual when using that data. I actually read a book called The Circle, which um, I would suggest you don't watch the movie on Netflix because it's not. Very oh, good. even yeah, I've read, I've, I've read the book actually. Well, who is it? Is it um, um, Dan- Dave Eggers? Dave Eggers, that's it. Yeah, I've read the book. Yeah. yeah. And, and I read that book and I, I've been traveling a lot to America because we told a business to, to an American firm. We were doing lots of kind of deep data analytics and, you know, millions and millions of customer records. And we were always trying to get this kind of 360 degree view of the customer, you know, try and really understand what they were up and what, what made them tick. And um, it was when I read that book and they were trying to get not just a 360 degree view, but a 365 day 24-7 view of the individual and uh, a lot of people started to go off grid and um, and kind of like opting out of the platforms and opting out of kind of a digital society and it was really as I read that book I was thinking well yeah what if that was to happen in reality um, you know and this is the kind of thing I'm doing you know I'm, I'm doing all of this stuff and I'm never really looking at the the, the potential weaponization of data and what might come of it and it was when I, I was doing that, I had a conversation, left that company, and really My Life Digital came about. And what we were trying to do is think, well, if people don't trust um, organizations with their data, then actually society will lose out as a whole, and they will lose out as well, because actually a lot of good can come from sharing of data, but also a lot of bad and a lot of harm can come as well. And that's really, so we went about how do you do that? And right at the start, we were thinking, well, we really want to be a, an organization where it's very people centric, where an individual is in full control of their data. And, you know, an individual can have their data in their own strong box, as we called it, or what we were looking at. And then they can permission that data to be used across many different organizations, health authorities, government, etc. But they were in control. Um, obviously, that's a bit of an altruistic view, and you know it's a very difficult business to scale. And, and I, people at the company hear me say it a lot, and I hope I don't mind me swearing, but I call it the gas moment. 
you know, w- when people start to give a shit about their data. Because at that mm-hmm. time, I don't think people really cared enough. But obviously, since then, um, we've seen, you know, the Cambridge Analytica. We've seen, you know, there's been a lot of uh, documentaries on Netflix, like The Great Hack, um, and so on, and looking at that. And people are starting to become aware that their data has value and that organizations are desperate to get hold of it. And that a lot of organizations are getting hold of it, but then they're using it for purposes that they might not necessarily know. So really our, our focus when we set the business up was how do you, you know, permission that data effectively? And that's really kind of where, how we ended up very much in the kind of the consent um, and preference management world but working with organizations become way more transparent with consumers over the data they need and the purposes they, they need it for and to empower consumers to actually make decisions over how it can and can't be used. And that's really where it came about. And I just really, because I need to touch on the fact that it's not my life digital anymore um, because we've just recently sold the company to uh, an organization called DataGuard, or a German-based um, privacy-as-a-service organization. Um, and the reason why we've done that is, is they've got a very similar vision to us, which you know, I really loved, and I was kind of jealous that we didn't come up with it, which is to protect the people behind the data. So actually, we've kind of joined together, and, and um, you know, hopefully we're going to do great, great things going forward. But sorry, a bit of a backstory. I probably waffled on, but that tells you where we've come from. It's really interesting, actually. I think when we spoke before, so uh, Jay and I first had a chat, I don't know, time loses all meaning under COVID, but it was probably six months ago now. But um, a bit of your backstory is I, is I went through a very similar thing, actually. And I think that we spoke about it where um, we were involved in, uh, or I was in the commercialization of data and um, basically earning huge amounts of revenue from it. And around a similar time came up with the same sort of ideas, which was... Um, how do we put the power back into people's hands so that they control their data rather than it's sort of just being let loose into the wild? Um, and there's new stuff coming out now because there's a sort of zeitgeist about it now with iOS 14 and the sort of um, you know the arguments between Facebook and Apple. And so you've got stuff like generate ads. This guy that was on Dragon's Den that's doing it, um, trying to empower people's data. It's it's a it's a strange thing, isn't it? Where I think. A, a, that people that were involved in data um, early on probably, or some people recognized this issue, um, but it was too early to potentially do anything about it. And now it's it's becoming like much more to the fore, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say when, when we set out, you know, 2014, 2015, you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't the thing and people didn't really think about it. And, but actually um, there was a white, paper released by the World Economic Forum around about the same time, which was, um, you know, looking at, you know, data through a new lens, effectively, personal data. And it it was really trying to to kind of speak to kind of the three core pillars around kind of how organizations must be looking at personal data going forwards, which is, you know, transparency was the, the big one, empowerment was the second one, and third one was accountability. And actually, if you look at those three things, you know, they, those have all been kind of picked up very much within, you know, dare I say, it, almost three years on GDPR um, as, as the key area that, you know, you've got to be complete transparent. You've got to inform the individual. Um, and 
I think GDPR has obviously helped because organisations are starting to, you know, really understand that it is more than just tick boxes when it comes to getting consent and so on, um, because people really need to understand. But I think, you know, the regulation, people are starting to learn more about it because, you know, what you're seeing with Apple, you know, they are using privacy as a differentiator. You know, you're, you're starting to see lots of organisations recognise that privacy you know, it needs to be a bit like, I think Gartner said, it's a bit like the new fair trade copy. You know, you, you, or, you know, you're going to buy a product based on how they look after your privacy and how they treat your privacy. And I think that's really important because, you know, uh, you know people are beginning to understand and they are understanding that data has, as I said, a value. Um, and it can be used for good and it can be used for harm. And they want to make sure that they're working with reputable organisations. And I think, you know, later we're going to be kind of looking at some of those kind of deeper areas around, you know, how organisations just get consent and then, you know, assume therefore they can do anything they like with data. But that's kind of where we get into the kind of the ethical side around you might have the legal right to do something with someone's data. But the question mark is, is should you be doing it? And I think it's really it's a real fine balance at the moment for organisations to get it right. Um, when they're thinking about personal data and going forwards. And something that you said there, you talk about helping individuals and companies understand um, the sort of the meaning, the value of data, but what does that, in actionable terms, what does that require them to start doing? Um, um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a good example. You know, just pre-GDPR, we all got bombarded with these emails, didn't we, saying, please consent into this. And, mm it was an absolute nightmare um but there was a reason for that because there was a lot of this implied consent going on um pre-gdpr and obviously when everything came into a force what it meant was that you your consent that you had around using data had to be of quite a high grade you know you needed to be able to determine where you collected the consent what information you provided to the data subject you know um time stamping it how long you're going to rely on it all of those things and a lot of organizations didn't have that so so when we talk about the kind of like the meaning and the value of data you know we, we were speaking to one um one prospect who on the 24th of may 2018 had the ability of contacting bar email 1.8 million customers and um or prospects and then on the i think it was on well on the 25th of may they could only contact 18,000 because wow. they suddenly had to shut it down because they didn't collect those consents. And so there was one area around, it was more around the trusted data, the meaning and the value of trusted data, because if it, it's all very well an individual trusting you, but also if you're a marketeer and you can't trust your data, and if you're a, you know, you've got to look at the governance, you can't trust the data because you don't know where you got it from. You don't know why you um, you don't know why you collected it in the first place. You couldn't define a purpose around it. You haven't got a kind of you don't know the provenance of the data. You suddenly lose all of that meaning and you lose all of that value around the data. And a lot of organisations found themselves in that position where I don't know. I've got three and a half million records on my on my database. Okay, maybe one and a half million of them are active customers. I've got no idea sometimes where the rest of the data came from. And obviously that meant they had to, to go. So that was one area, but, but also what we found with the regulation was organizations did really have to start understanding 
what data they did hold on people, you know, what purposes they were using it for. Um, and then once they did that, you know, they could see where they had the right permissions in place to use the data. And once they had that mapped out and understood what they could and couldn't do with data, then they could start to put in place strategies, if you like, to capture the right consents so that they had the right, they had the right kind of permissions con consents in place to actually kind of grow their, their data, grow their revenues and so on. And, and that's really what we mean by that. Yeah, I remember um, many years ago when the quantity of data that you held was the sort of determinant of success of the company. So everyone who was a marketeer and used to work in direct marketing used to say they've got 65 million records. And in reality, it was the same 65 million records that everybody held in lots of different companies. And what they do is just buy it off each other in order to... Uh, to send the same messages or different marketing or whatever to um, to other companies, and um, that it's that continued sort of right up until GDPR. And as you mentioned, um, the quantity suddenly became less important, and it was more about the consent and also the quality and things. Um, but we still see the same thing in lead generation, where people chase um, the quantity of leads that they can get and. The consent, what they're looking for isn't necessarily consent as in the person knows that they're going to be contacting. It's like a loophole they're looking for, which is they've got consent, but they might not know that I'm the one contacting them. Um, and I, I, I think that's still potentially an issue for me anyway. That's, you know, I, I know we, you and I uh, talked uh, previously about a, a website we were looking at um, where they've got sort of opt-ins on um, uh, for different third parties on the website. And so via that, you can still collect a lot of information on people, which is legal, but you know, how much sort of intent and consent does that actual person have? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, we, we were looking at that site and there, I know there's going to be no names, but you know, yeah, that, that kind of drove me to go back and just do a bit of a refresh around, um, you know, just, just to relook really at Article 4, you, you know, which is the definition of consent, and then Article 7, which is the conditions of consent. And, you know, again, we're, without getting too geeky, you know, it's all about, you know, for me, just in simple terms, you've got to, it's got to be really clear and specific, and the individual need, needs to know what they're consenting to, um, and to have a list of companies hidden behind a, a kind of a click box, um, which are hundreds and hundreds, and then to, to kind of assume that is informed consent, I think will be will be a challenge for a lot of organisations. And, you know, I, 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 I'm also having come at it from a background of a marketeer, I, I'm also a pragmatist. And I know that you know, organisations need to exist and they need to be commercial. They need to capture um, leads. But actually, is, is a lead that valuable to an organisation when a, so individuals come onto a website and the next thing you know that that lead's now being farmed out for 100 different purposes to 200 different companies? You know, is there any value in that at all? Um, I, I wouldn't say so. And I think that's what GDPR's done. It, it's kind of led to kind of adding a lot better quality um, around data because people are um, 
you know, because if people are organizations are being transparent with them and say, look, I need your data for this purpose, are you okay with that? Then an individual will either say yes or no. And if they say yes, then you know you're onto something and you know you can then start to nurture it or, or try and sell something and so on. If they say no, the chances are it's probably because they're not interested. And, and I think that's the um, yeah, that that's what I think the the, the transparent piece is, is really good. And if organizations start to move in that direction and don't be afraid, you know, I, I always say the thing that to a lot of my clients, you know, if you can't describe why you need someone's data over the table to your grandmother without it sounding creepy, then it, you know, it probably is creepy and therefore you probably shouldn't be doing it. So it's kind of those things. And certainly I'd say that website, you showed me something certainly on the creepy side. You know, it, it was kind of like, yeah, there was there was a lot going on in the background that wasn't necessarily, you felt you were being really informed at the front, but there was a lot going on behind the scenes which wasn't quite as informed. I think that's still potentially rife in um, certain markets as well. And a lot of companies rely on that data that um, sort of spew out of those websites, um, purely because they're taking a spray and pray approach to their marketing. And they believe that... Um, that consent is a sort of loophole that gives them this ability to contact people. And it's regardless of the transparency, um, yeah, they're just trying to hammer them to get sales. Is, what it's usually based on, so the one that we were looking at that we highlighted was a loan site. So what the companies that are then listed will then try and do is they're thinking this is the type of individual who might need these sort of services. But the problem for me is... Um, this, I mean, even if we took the position, it was like a, it was legal, right? So what they were doing was allowed, which is very, very questionable anyway. But there's there's no transparency and there's no intent behind the user. So we talk about this thing with like consent and intent. So consent sort of, you know, is one thing, but there needs to be an element of um, intent. And the only way you can get that intent is like you said, to be, actually be transparent. Because if you're transparent, they know what's going to happen. And so they could easily opt out of it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's why I think, you know, that's why we talk about transparency drives the value because, you know, you're getting a much better quality data um, product coming off the back of it. And, you know, I think, you know, as saying that that site, you know, whilst they may believe it's legal, the, the actual the accountability of the of buying that data actually falls on the um, on the organization that's buying it as well. You know, if they're, they're buying that data, it falls on them to, to validate that the consent that has been received by the, the third party they're receiving the data from is actually a valid consent. Um, and I think that would be a challenge, you know, for, for that organization to be able to demonstrate the validity of that consent. And that, that's why a lot of organizations, I know where you guys, because I've seen your product as well, you know, you, you have great kind of provenance and kind of, receipting if you like around the consent that you receive around the leads that you're generating so that when you do pass it on to a third party or or a client you know they know that you've got um, a proper valid consent on their behalf and I think that's the importance so many companies have I think kind of delivered what I would call the minimum viable product around consent and not really understood what consent is um, because they haven't really taken a human-centric approach they've taken kind of well, I think you guys were referring to the sales centric approach, you know, just give me as much bloody data as I can get. Mm. And I'm just going to 
I'm just going to, you know, bombard the crap out of, you know, these people until I get what I want. Um, whereas, it, you know, the informed consent delivers, you know, better value to any organisation. I think, you know, people have just got to start thinking about putting more value about, around that first party data. Yeah. I think um, what you, I just want to kind of focus on that a little bit there, Jake, um, because people listen to this, you know, we, we talk about transparency and consent in this idealistic way a lot of the time. I know myself and Simon doing, you know, that's, that's great. It's what we believe. But some people listening, you know, like we said in the, the kind of the title of this podcast is it's actually good for them in, as a business as well as for the consumer. And, you know, we sort of say transparency and consent unlocks growth. And we kind of we talked there about the previous sort of sales centric approach, but um, what kind of just to sort of reinforce that? What are the sort of limitations of doing it the old way, and how is this new way a kind of a way to unlock growth for companies? I mean, I think you know there, there are challenges, right, um, to um, capturing transparent consent um, because and, and capturing consent in a ethical and also in a in a compliant manner. So, you know, I'm going to kind of talk about, you know, something that organized, you know, that's out there called the consent paradox. Um, and the consent paradox is, is actually kind of almost, whilst I'm out preaching transparency consent, you know, the consent paradox almost kind of turns people, turns people off against transparency and privacy and so on, because if you get hit with a consent wall with 50 flipping options to hit before you can progress to the mm. next step, as an individual, I'm going to, I'm going to be hunting out that accept all button because I just want to get on to the next point. And, and that's a real problem because that, that kind of then means organizations are still getting consent. That is probably still slight is unlawful. Well, definitely unlawful if they've used an accept all button, um, but gives you the, um, I guess from their point of view, um, you know, they, they've delivered what they wanted to because they wanted to get onto the UX, but the individual hasn't really understood the point around the privacy. So there are real challenges to doing things compliantly in a way that gives an organization the ability to deliver the personalization and the value and the kind of the, the that, that, kind of bespoke solution to a customer when they come onto their website. So I know there's a lot of challenges. So, you know, practical ways around that, you know, where we come in from is, um, you know, I call it with our clients kind of to be practical is, is it the data game is a bit like the dating game. You know, you don't date, jump in on day one and ask for everything about an individual. Because that would just again come across being a bit weird and a bit creepy, um, but if you were to kind of get a key, a few key pieces of information and permissions, if we relate it to consent, um, and obviously you need to be careful when you talk about dating games and consent and so on. But you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, you know, the next time that person visits your website, if you if you have an automated system where you know what permissions and what consents you have in place, then don't ask for them again. You know, so the next time they come, ask for the next most valuable consents to enable you to kind of like extend that relationship a bit further and a bit further and keep on going. And, and I think that for us is, is kind of enables an organization to deliver then that transparency piece, because I can now actually say, I need this 
consent for this purpose, I need this consent for this purpose. And an individual can actually read it and engage with you and understand why you need it. And, you know, right back in 2012, you know, when we were looking at research around, you know, investing and building out My Life Digital, we found um, a research study into an organization that had done some A-B testing on, on web forms, on major brands. And what they'd actually done is they, they'd taken kind of these forms where many of the, the, um, the components of the form have been mandatory. And then they, they A-B test them by taking that same form and making many of those elements optional. And then actually putting a forget me button above it. And the form that had the forget me button and was predominantly optional, actually collected 18% more data than the form that was predominantly mandatory. So it just goes to show that an individual, if, you, if they feel more in control and they, they feel as though there's more trust there through that forget me button, they were actually more prepared to give data up. And I think that's important when you look at that transparency piece. If you are open with an individual, they're going to trust you more. And if they trust you more, they're going to give you more information. And I think they're, they're the practical areas. And, and I say to, to practically deliver it, if you're a marketer, you know, you're thinking, crikey, I'm going to have to present a consent rule to my customers, which is going to turn them off from the user experience to do it right. Well, don't, don't do it in that way. Do it just in time. Do it contextually. Ask for those permissions as and when you need them, not on day one, because you might need them. And I think that that's kind of a big difference. And that's kind of how our approach comes at it um, when we look at that consent paradox. I think that's a brilliant idea. And that applies to like the metadata. So it could be used for retargeting as well as um, any sort of personal data. So it could be, you know, um, you'd suddenly pop up like a tabula opt-in and say, yeah, we, because you're not currently a customer, if they were just a prospect, we'd like to be able to retarget you with um, products or services that we think that you might like. Um, I think one of the things it comes back to as well is this sort of in a particular sphere of lead generation and direct marketing is the very transactional approach that everyone takes to it. So it's completely driven, as you mentioned, by like getting a sale, getting someone's data so that there's just like a one hit wonder that can happen. So, you know, they're not going after the long term like relationship or value. One of the things that we always talk about is actually um, lead generators because um, by their nature, they're then very transactional because they're just trying to collect someone's data and pass it on to a client or whatever. If they actually started to look at becoming more like a brand themselves and building relationships with the prospects that they um, generate, that consent mechanism is the route that you would follow because then that gives you the ability to like engage the person um, as a lead for a particular product in the first place and then keep this relationship going whilst being like overly transparent and also build your product and your offering out at the same time. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think that's the future that, you know, they need to follow um, because I yeah. think there's, uh, you know, personal data is just like you said, it's um, people becoming more aware of it and where it gets abused is, is just going to slowly die, I would think. Yeah, and, and, and I think also, you know, the, the regulators, you know, haven't, are now starting to enforce around doing it right. And, you know, again, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but we had a, a client that, you know, wasn't doing anything knowingly in, in wrong. You know, they were, 
they had a consented marketing base, they were communicating with their customers, but they were also communicating with those customers along uh, the lines of third party products. And what they hadn't appreciated under, you know, um, more, more aligned to PECA regulations was that if you want to market third party products to your customers, you need a separate consent to market third party products to them. And, and that was a real challenge because suddenly I've got to introduce a new purpose. And you know, I think for this particular client, for them to do that, one, that would have been a huge amount of time on their websites and their IT and infrastructure. So, so we, you know, because we, we've come at it as, you know, that, that kind of progressive introducing new purposes over time, what, the, what they're able to do was actually introduce uh, a new purpose, a new consent box in that journey with their customer at a particular point in time and say, hey, we'd like to be able to send you some great offers from third parties that we have relationships with. Would you be okay with that? And it's a simple yes and no. So you're asking that along the journey and you're capturing a compliant consent and then you can start promoting those products. Whereas, you know, a lot of, as you say, a lot of companies just view it as a single consent. I've got an opt-in to do email, it's great, but actually it's not granular. It doesn't really mean anything because the customer's you know, not necessarily kind of opted into that. They've just opted into an email from you, but not about certain things. So again, that's around adding more value to the customer around it. Yeah. It's really interesting. And just to, just to bring it back to Netflix, like I think as we started on with, have you seen, it's a show that's called Maniac or something like that, where you're like on a really sort of granular level, like people can opt in for like adverts and like in, on like an individual thing, they can give data like individual ones and they can, have you seen that before? I, I haven't seen that. I'm going to have to look that one up. But yeah, yeah so I think they're in like shops, and they'd be like, "Do you agree to an advert?" And they'd be like, "Yeah," and then they just like get like instantly get one. It's quite it's quite interesting. Makes you think of that. Yeah. Um, just to sort of bring it back around then, because um, I think we have sort of answered this, and we've covered a lot of the kind of topics in, in a, about just sort of um, I sort of s- summarize it. Um, so the su- the subject of this podcast, the title is "Why Data Transparency and Growth um, and Consent Unlocks Growth." Um, can you sort of summarise why you think transparency and consent is key to this for, for companies moving forwards? Yeah, I, I think I, I actually print something out because I, I'm, I'm, my memory is rubbish. So, um, you know, I just thought if I've got it here, have I got it here? I'm pretty sure I have. That's a problem. There. Let's hope you don't forget there. some of the GDPR rules, eh? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I've got because it's, it's it's a really great comment, and um, yeah, this this guy um, he, he's one of the lawyers from Unilever, and he's kind of a, a attached the the kind of the marketing division there, and Unilever are, are doing amazing things around delivering kind of data ethical data ethic frameworks around how they're using data, and and he they've established um, he he's if you like chair of the world. Um, World Federation of Advertisers have a data ethics committee now, and they're really pushing down on the, the whole sector, the importance of doing data transparently um, and doing it right and putting ethics in. And I just, this was something that a lady, a quote from that report that Jane Wakeley, she's the lead CMO at Mars. So quite a, you know important lady when it comes to marketing. Um, and for me, it kind of just showed how seriously brands are now starting to consider data ethics, you know, and they're looking at it from a human centric approach. And she, she basically said, you know, any conversation around data 
needs to be human centric. And for advertisers and marketeers, it must have consumers at the heart. How we use data in the next few years will undoubtedly shape our future. And this power must be harnessed responsibly and legally. As a purpose-driven company whose five principles have guided our decisions for over a century, we know these values must apply to every facet of our business. That includes using data responsibly and grounding our relationships with consumers in transparency and trust. And I promise you, I didn't pay her to write that based on this podcast. But, you know, for me, you know, I think they are, as I said right at the start, you know, privacy is now being used as a differentiator. Um, and it, it's weird, you know, to be, to do privacy right, you have to be transparent. Yeah, it's a bit of an oxymoron, but you have to do it. You have to inform the individual around these areas. And, and I think we've shown that if you are transparent with an individual, they, that will build the trust and that will give you a much better quality of data because you can rely on it, because you know that that person has understood why they're giving up their data or why they're giving you a particular consent. And then you can use that and generate a lot more value. And that, that for me is really the, the biggest driver. And I think as we do move to a world where, you know, as you saw that, um, uh, uh, what was it called, generate on Dragon's Den, you know, we are moving to a world where the individual is almost going to be the point of integration. You know, the technology is there where, you know, we're moving to a decentralized world where the individual will be in control of their phone, of the data. You know, our phones hold pretty much all the data about us and we need to have mechanisms where they are in control over who they are sharing that data to and the purposes. And that kind of goes right back to our original principles around my life digital. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's because uh, I think for us as an organization at Databall, we hold the same sort of beliefs that you do. Um, and it's something that I know I and Daniel, we've spoken about it a lot before is just, um, a lot of this stuff around data is there's just almost no point unless you're being transparent or the data that you have knows that you have it and knows what you're going to be doing with it or that the person stops seeing it as data is what we always um, talk about um and yeah it just completely comes back to the relationship that you want to build with your prospects and customers doesn't it and do you want it to be um yeah. well informed do you want a lot of intent behind the user. Do you want them to appreciate your company? And that's how great brands are built as well, right? Because you can't build evangelists for yeah. your brand if you're hiding something or if you're like prepared to accept um, like no intent behind them to contact them. It's just, you know, whatever way you look at it, consent and the intent and the transparency behind it um, for us is like the most important thing. And for you, obviously, 100% as well. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're as I said, we're also pragmatists, you know, we, we kind of come at this, you know, in the view that, you know, if you, if you ask an individual, do you trust organisations with your data, we've just done a recent survey, 80% of them will say no, yeah, if you ask an individual, the same individual, do you want personalised experiences from the brands you engage with, 80% of them will say yes, mm. and the problem is you can't have one without the other. Yeah. So it's kind of like, how do you enable that kind of that data to flow between those parties to enable those personalized relationships to, to take place? Because, you know, one of the other challenges today, and, and I know we're, we're trying to wrap up, but, 
you know, one of the other challenges today is, is that, you know, we're starting to be dominated by AI as well. You know, and AI is making decisions about us that, you know, or inferring on our behalf that are invariably wrong, you know, because, mm. you know, everyone's now about AI and trust me, there are not enough mathematicians or data scientists out there who can do it well enough to be able to infer what you really want to be doing at that moment in time. And, and therefore, again, that's going to come down to empowering individuals to provide you with more information so that you don't infer incorrectly about them, which can actually, from a brand point of view and reputational point of view, do you some massive harm. Because if you start inferring things about something that might negatively impact them then or offend them, then actually that's not good for the brand either. So I think, you know, my, my view has been, you know, be transparent, be open, ask the questions, and but do it in a way that is, you know, a decent user experience so that, you know, you can, you can build and grow that relationship with the consumer over time. Yeah, great point to end on. Thank you for yeah, that. That's, um, cool. That's very interesting. I think um, we, we always try and have a degree of objectivity on this show and we try and approach things as objectively as we can. Um, but when it comes to transparency, I think there's sort of, if you've listened to the show before, there's sort of no facade. I think, uh, yeah, we definitely, definitely agree with you. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, on the show. Thank you so much, Jay. Oh, you're welcome. Cheers, Jen. Cheers, Simon. Thank you. Cheers, Jay. Thank you. You're listening to the B2C Lead Generation Podcast. And now it's time for the post-chat rundown. It's pretty simple. We talk through the conversation, assess what we've learned from our guest and pull out the key ideas for you. The stuff we think can make a real difference to your lead. That was Jay Cromack on the BT Legion podcast. And uh, if you're searching for him, that's Jay, the letter J um, online, not the, not the name J. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. Simon, what did you um, what do you think about that? I thought it was a great guest. Um, and the way I see it, um, and Jay um, is much more eloquent in saying it, is that there's effectively like transparent consent and potentially deceptive consent. Um, and the difference between them is that obviously with transparent consent there's the potential or that you will have more intent in a user from a marketing perspective whereas with deceptive consent which is potentially hidden and the user is very well informed um, you know is there any intent Um, and it's really the transparency that drives intent Um, that's what I think yeah, it was really interesting. I think um, we talked about we talked about it a little bit, but um, when when you think of uh, consent, often it could be almost like a binary thing, like people have it or not. But actually, it's an evolving thing. It's changing. Um, there are degrees of it. It's like a whole spectrum. It's like it's yeah. I mean, we, we covered the space really interesting, and um, I think it's something to be aware of. But um, what I want to do just to kind of put you on the spot, and I always, I suppose I'm always a person who tries to bring it back to the people listening, what they need to know, what they can actually take from it and sort of condense it. What do people listening need to know? Basically, you need to be as transparent as fuck. Um, it's the best way I can put it. Um, and this is something I fundamentally believe as well, right? And like we fundamentally believe as an organization that transparency is the thing that trumps absolutely everything. And that's transparency with the consumer um, or the prospect, how you're going to be contacting them, the level of consent that you get, how you get consent, how you're going to be using their data, how you're going to communicate with them. And ultimately 
that consent drives the intent of the user because if you're transparent with the consent there is always going to be more intent behind them um so when we talk about intent which we talk about a lot ultimately is driven by the user consenting to a transparent process where they know exactly what's going to happen there is no surprises um so that's the the key thing um that i would take from it 100 percent. i think um yeah, I think that's a <laughs> nice, uh, eloquent way <laughs> of putting it. But I think, yeah, 100%. That's a good, um, a good way of viewing it. And yeah, Jay was Jay. Also, it's nice to speak to people who, who are fundamentally agree with us. That sounds bad, but it, who share this ideal is a better way of putting it. People who share these ideas and about how the industry should work. Um, yeah, that was great. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is. And we keep coming back to this all the time. The data leads, however you're looking at it, prospects is real people and they have thoughts and emotions and wants and needs exactly like we all do. Um, and it gets lost in the data because people view it as data. And by gathering consent correctly and being very transparent, you're treating them like a human. Um, you're being human-centric, which is something that Jay touched on. And that's really at the core of marketing. And especially marketing with data is you've got to treat these people um, as humans and sort of communicate with them on their terms on their basis um, and that's something that all of us can uh, can learn from and um, and think about how it sort of evolves our brands how it feeds into our organizations how we want to deal with it the sort of wider world in terms of uh, how we market and advertise ourselves Definitely. So that um, you're listening. That was the BTC Lead Generation Podcast and why data transparency and consent unlocks growth. Thanks for listening to the BTC Lead Generation Podcast, the show for serious lead generators. Be sure to hit subscribe to hear more from those at the very cutting edge of the lead gen world.